Chris, do you remember how this goes? Yeah, yeah. Just tell me when you okay. want me to start. Yeah, yeah, good. Oh, he hit recording. Okay. Yep. Uh, welcome to Macrofab. Sorry, I'm starting over. Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am Chris. Son of a bitch. Okay, start now. Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Chris Carter. We're and we are hosts, Parker. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Welcome to Macrofab. How oh, my shit. This is the last one. Okay. Welcome okay. to MacFab, where we sell PCBs and PCB accessories. Man, just put this whole thing on there and be like, like comment, and subscribe. <laughs> okay, here I go. <laughs> Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Chris Carter. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 263. Chris Carter is the owner of Mercury Inc., a design consulting firm with expertise in electrical, mechanical, software, and firmware development. Yeah, as Chris, who introed the podcast, uh, he was last seen on episode 244. We have no idea where he was before then, but or <laughs> during that time period, but um, go check out Comic-Con for Engineers, episode 244, where we talked about design for manufacturability for PCB assembly. So, Chris, what are we talking about today? Uh, so I think we'll take this DFM stuff on, on a little bit further. I don't know that I would say that this is the next level, um, but definitely DFM has like a lot of angles, right? So I think we just dive a little bit deeper into it. And I think we'll, I, I kind of wanted to focus on DFM for safety. And <clears throat> kind of what I mean by that is not like mechanical safety like break your arm or something like that but the supply chain safety and this and and making sure that you have access to everything that you need to build your products um i, I know that it, that uh dfm in general is about that right but uh there's the this i think we mostly talked about throughput uh last time and this is more about uh stability right and making sure that you can manufacture your product yeah I, yeah last time we talked about kind of like actually like assembling your your board making sure you can actually build it physically build it but this is more of sure you can actually build it but can you actually get the components that to build it yeah 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 well and not just components i mean how about finding vendors that have the capability right like there's there's definitely deeper levels than just doing alternate part sourcing um so i don't know i guess uh I, so on on that note I have a, a, an in-depth question for you two, and, and I'm curious about it, but it's it's about, um, maybe, maybe we should ask it towards the end because the I wanted to talk about TI and their IP in uh, their dies. So you can buy TI dies and the IP for it, and then you can dual source your manufacturing in different chip plants. And maybe we just leave this on the table for discussion, but, uh, the, the question or the or the concern that I have is when you talk to a manufacturer about that. So we, we designed an ASIC for on semi and they told us the exact same thing. So it's not like they were trying to protect their IP. They said, we will absolutely give you our die and, and you can take it anywhere. But we recommend that you don't have two fab shops manufacturing your dies. It's not safer. You end up with more problems. What do you guys think about that? Is that from like a... I guess what they're thinking of is you get different fallouts from different manufacturing processes. Is that where they're... So we're talking about <clears throat> dyes in terms of 
the integrated component dyes that go inside your semiconductors, right? Yeah, that's fair. I guess I, I probably skipped a little bit there, right? So, so that I am talking about a more complicated like uh, cortex in three, cortex in four F sort of thing in dye before it goes into silicone, so that you could basically buy the the dyes, ship half of them to Malaysia, half of them to whatever Pocatello, Idaho, and have on semi make half of them in the states and half of them in China. And then you fab everything that comes out of the States in the States and everything out of China in China. And the both, both companies independently and years apart were both like eyes get buggy and they're like, yeah, we'll do that, but avoid it. It just seemed like an interesting thing because most of the time I recommend people find two vendors, right? That have the same capabilities. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bet you because you'd have, it's two different processes and you're talking about something, the, where where process really, I, I won't. I don't want to say it matters because it always matters. Process always matters. But I, I would say your fallout probably for chip level manufacturing is just different depending on where it gets manufactured and what technologies are used. Yeah. Um, and so I would say, yeah, you because like if they got mixed up at all, like let's say you got made half of them in in. Uh, U.S. fab and then half of them in a Malaysian fab, and then they all got combined somewhere else. Well, you know, without any proper lock control, how are you going to know which chips are bad or good or et cetera? Yeah. So I when when I asked, so so the the company that asked was a pharmaceutical. So those crazy bastards really wanted dual everything, right? They wanted raw material dual sourcing. I'm like, you dudes are. I, I'm never going to be able to provide that. Yeah, they want they want you know. Two lithium mines. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, they want to make sure that if one place goes out of business, they can just keep going, which is crazy. In the, in they the want, if they went far enough, they want two Earths. Yeah. So On didn't have a good answer for me, but TI, um, what did they tell me? Uh, oh, they said, what, so So the question came up then, obviously, the, the pharmaceuticals, well, what about capacity when we need, you know, 200 million instead of 100 million in a year? How do you do that? And TI's like scale, we scale up. That that's that was their answer. Uh, now this is one dude in the wireless department, right? Like he runs the Chameleon project line, uh, the CC thirteen tens or thirteen fifties, fifty twos, all that sort of stuff. So maybe there's one aspect of this that I'm that I'm thinking that this is like narrow in scope. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to chat that through and see if you guys were seeing the same sort of thing or if it makes sense on the die level. Well, I've never really dealt with the die level stuff. Okay. Um, we did have a couple. We had a, a chip, a chip and Ken from Parallax, who do a lot of chip level stuff. They could probably answer that question. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, okay. So we won't go down into the die then, right? I mean, well, actually, I mean, if you were going to do a cheap toy, you'd want to buy dies, right? Glob tops and and mm-hmm. just roll it out. So. Maybe we'll stay out of that out of that realm for now. But well, I, w- one thing I I would just say on that that's been going through my mind is that <clears throat> if you were purchasing that IP that die from from one place, uh, and then and then doing separate or doing the same process in two locations, like Parker was saying, y- your documentation I think would have to be damn near next to flawless as to what your expectations are, and then how you would handle fallout, how you would handle. Um, 
I, I don't want to say like pointing fingers or fault or blame or anything like that, but like at what point in time does the original manufacturer, the die get to wash their hands uh, uh, and say, it's not my, my, my problem anymore. You, those kind of expectations would need to be extremely clear. Yeah, no, I think, I think now that you say it that way, that that's probably why they were shying us away from it. Not that it's impossible, mm-hmm. but that it would be time consuming. And then how do you track back? And like you said, not, not to point fingers, but if we don't point a finger and find the problem, we can't solve it. Yeah, liability would be really difficult to track. Well, and that's essentially what DFM is, right? Like, I, I, you can make some plans and hope nothing breaks, but it's all going to break. So you, you need to be able to trace it back down. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. That, that, makes a, that makes a lot of sense. It probably is more about that than just simple capabilities. They probably only spec out their sales team only sold, you know, a couple sessions with a with a applications engineer, not two sessions worth of application engineers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It could just be that simple. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. You only paid for enough support for one one fab. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first the first one we were definitely paying um it on semi because we were building an ASIC, but at TI it was more like engaging about like the use of the chameleon line and, and its future and our product's future. And so it was way more collaborative. And I felt like the guy wasn't selling us, right? He brought people into the room to sell us. And we were just standing in the anechoic chamber, like geeking out. And, and he's telling us this sort of like weird stuff, right? So that's, that's what I kind of believe in that it's probably best to, to not try and get into that avenue if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, so I kind of hijacked the first part of the call on that or the first part of the, the podcast on that. I was going to start by talking about sizes, right? Project sizes, because everything that we're about to say and everything we have said is really project dependent, um, project yeah. size, volume, velocity, all of those things play a role. So I, I going to try and keep it rounded so that you can pick and choose which elements apply to your individual project. Yeah, um, it, whether or not you care about uh, um, like alternate parts or whatever is like it really depends on like what you're building. If you're if you're building a one off for your like a one off uh, ornament for your mom that put it on her tree, you probably don't need to get four different vendors for the LEDs <laughs> for them. Yeah. Or make sure that you're specking out like three different microcontrollers from the same line that just have slightly different memory constraints. Yeah. Yeah. You probably don't need to do that. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's a that's a, a good sidebar before we jump into project side. So so what are the basics of of safety, right? So definitely alternate parts. Anywhere you can put alternate discretes. Microcontrollers, though, when you said that triggers an interesting question because there aren't always multiple package types, there aren't always compatible footprints. Um, so if your project size is small, my recommendation is much different than if your project size is large. Um, if your project size is small, buy the 50 you need now, right? Before they go out of stock and you can't get to them. If your project size is large, the, the answer is still the same. Buy as many as you can, but go to the vendor. Negotiate with the vendor, right? Like you definitely want to get boots on the ground and get close to those dudes. Um, so should we just spec out three basic project sizes so as we go along, we can, ref- like if there's a caveat, we can reference the size. I think, I think, Obvious are prototypes, and, and there's not a whole lot of need for DFM and, and one-offs and my own personal mom's project and stuff like that. So well, I, 
I would separate the, those out in the two. There are one-off projects, and then there are prototypes that are designed to go into bigger stuff to go on. Oh, you're saying like if it's a production unit, but but we're only making one. Yeah, well, like if you're prototyping because you're like I I want to build ten thousand widgets, I still need a prototype for the first widget. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you, if you're if you're look if you're I guess that's project based as well. Um, and well, not where your project's going to scale to. Yeah. But if, so if you're expecting your pr- prototype project to scale up to ten thousand units or a hundred thousand units, you should be worrying about the hundred thousand unit supply chain stuff oh, yeah. on your single unit. Yeah. But yeah, but if you're making a widget for your for your Christmas tree, I don't think you have to worry too much about supply chain. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna pull something out of your kids' toys anyways to get that last LED. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so I guess project sizes to me, I, I think we should keep velocity out of this because that can that can create a, a, a weird set of number of projects we got to track. But basically, like, I would say there's probably the one to a hundred, uh, and then there's probably the thousand to 10,000 range, and then there's anything above, say, like 50,000. And I know I left some gaps in there, but large project size, 100,000 in a year or more, uh, medium project size, let's say 10,000 in a year, uh, and, and small project sizes, anything under a thousand. And, and their, their approaches, and I think we did that annually, right? So if you think about that on an annual basis, um, supply chain for a thousand, maybe it is a good recommendation if you've got the cash flow to do the, you know, just to buy everything now so you don't have the problem. Um, I think one thing that, that you, you, we should definitely think about, and, and maybe this will change some of the things we talk about later, is like the, the duration of the product's lifespan. If it's a one-year life and you're going to make a thousand of them, DFM changes for a, a thing that you're making a thousand of, but you're going to do for the next 20 years. Uh, you definitely would need to have some path into, into, <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've had some older projects come to me where people just wanted to replace um, like a really old relay or something like that. And it ends up just being a complete redesign, but you know, $400 worth of parts in 1970 would have saved them having to build a whole new schematic later. I don't know if you, you guys run into any of that, like where they they could have just bought a, a bunch of old parts before they went out of stock. And now they have to do a full redesigns because they just didn't think ahead. I kind of uh, I think I've told this story before on Macrofet on the podcast, but um, previous company I worked for, which was Dynamic Perception, um, we had a, a product that was designed with a really weird optocoupler and it basically just had non-standard pinout standard package for it. it's like a dip four or whatever, but um, non-standard package uh, pinout for it. And actually dynamic precision just bought everything that we could. Yeah. And then there was, there was a, there was a, a uh, broker out there that knew we were buying everything and so they would hold back inventory from us. Oh. And, and then only piecemeal it out to us over time. Yeah, I've so, had that uh, happen. That pisses me off. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we we eventually redesigned the product to get around that. But like, I mean, it was like a whole year that we operated that way. Yeah, I'm, I, I have a similar product in the 915 range. I don't know why I like using duplexers to convert like single um, duplex devices into dual duplex devices, like full duplex devices. 
And uh, I found this awesome Skyworks duplexer that sat right at 915 in the middle. And you lost whatever, like two or three megahertz on each side of it. But when um, when the 4G stuff came out, LTE band eight, I think, sits in that general range. And so they built duplexers that sit at nine, um, I think 925 or something like that to separate the low and the high bands. And so you lose a huge chunk of the ISM band and uh, that's exactly what I did. I went out to every third-party vendor, every um, outsourcer that was that had it available, everybody in China that I could find it at, and we bought all the reels that, that we could find in the market. And I've still got, I don't know, maybe 300 left. It, it sucks, but sometimes if you've got an obsolete part and you just can't get somebody to keep making it. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing, though, is <clears throat> I think the way we're kind of talking about this is uh, perhaps a little bit ideal uh, and, and and maybe mm. even a little bit from an engineer's perspective, because as soon as you go to the accountants of the company and say, hey, we're going to have to buy everything and we're just going to have to float it as just inventory sitting on the shelf, they're going to laugh at you. Yeah, so that's, can that's we, fair. Can we, can we net 365 this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, I mean, like that, that pharmaceutical is the same company that I was talking about for that duplexer, right? So the duplexer... Um, you know, engineer, so I don't, I don't even know how you do this on a large scale because engineering was the one that found the issue and realized we wouldn't be able to buy more before we were in a purchasing cycle. Uh, so I say engineering, it was me. I wouldn't talk to him and was like, Hey dudes, like you can't buy this anymore. And so on a one-off situation, um, it, it wasn't 400 bucks. I think, I think those parts in total, when we liquidated everybody ended up being like 30 grand. But in the grand scheme of things, sitting on thirty grand for the next five years and being certain we can make them was was a better deal for them. So yes, on a project by project basis, on a decision by decision basis, you should we should be focused on that. But it, it brings up a really interesting point, and that is that accounting and should be tied into engineering in some way. There's a lot of dollars left on the table that people just don't realize they could keep. You should, you should sharpen your pencil on your supply chain all the time, right? Update your alt components and give accounting a little bit of a break, right? Then they're not the only ones looking for pennies. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, uh, work in progress is taxed uh, differently than finished products. And uh, then you pay inventory tax also. So if something's just sitting there and it's not built, you're paying taxes on it. If it's something partially built, you're paying taxes on it. If it's fully built, you pay different tax. So accounting is going to get real nerdy with all those numbers. And that's sort of something that we don't necessarily have to pay attention to as design engineers. Yeah. Uh, but and, and, and I'm saying this because I go through this kind of situation where I'm like, man, this would be really, really great if I could just buy, you know, uh, 10,000 STM uh, processors right now, that'll just be a hundred thousand dollars and we'll leave them on the shelf. Right. And then we're good for five years. And it's yeah. like, yeah, but you blow out your margins as as soon as you do that. Now I'm talking about from I'm in that category range of the uh, say 500 to 1500 units is is the 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 run size. Yeah. So uh, it, it gets a little bit more difficult if you don't have as much liquid cash to just flow around. Yeah, and I mean it's it's worth balancing the cost of of designing a secondary backup product. Um, so so once once the pharmaceutical heard that TI this like was not super into the idea of, of, of setting out the chips and they'd explain the safety issues to them that the, they were fine with that. Right. They, they accepted the argument, but the next day I got a phone call and they're like, well, what if you just built another one using someone else's chip? 
same functionality, right? So that is another possibility is to actually, <laughs> rather than dual sourcing your microcontrollers, you just build your product twice with two yeah, different exactly. microcontrollers. <laughs> if that mitigates your concern too, it is a possibility. I like how that was their solution though. <laughs> that was an accounting solution. No, no. The way you could tell it was an accounting solution is it started with, well, why don't you just? Yeah. Yeah. So here's what I've been telling everybody lately. Anytime somebody's like, hey, will you just go in and update this? It's just a real quick fix on the web. Or will you go in and update that firmware? Just quickly put this in there so that it divides by five or whatever. The work, all of the work is in just, right? You forget everything <laughs> else they said. The just is why the bill is coming to you because you don't get it. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that's my least favorite word right now. It's my favorite word when, when you're when you're scoping. Yeah, I, I, I dealt with a customer in the past that uh, was very, very uh, particular about making drawings do exactly what they wanted. And drawings should do exactly what you want. But uh, they were they were very, I don't know, like it, insistent on changing wording over and over and over. And yeah. my Rev A drawing was plenty acceptable to get the job done. <laughs> but by the time we were at like Rev H or something like that, I have finally had to say the next time you ask for something, it's $500 just to ask. And then it's $300 an hour for me to change your drawing. Cause like, I can't keep doing this, man. I can't keep just like changing words like over and over when Rev A was fine. Yeah. So I will say that especially, so like nomenclature, right. is super important. And, and, once you start defining it, staying in it is, is critical, right? But only if your part count is high. So if you've got a if you've got a complicated mechanical device that has, say, like 70 or 80 individual components, knowing that the, the detail and the name of the individual component matters. But if it's a smaller uh, project, it doesn't really like the, the documentation on on those if you've only got two components in your in your system or five components in your system, it's easier to reference them by type. But um, I've got a project right now that I think has somewhere in the order of about 700 unique components that all get assembled together. And if you use the word nut or ball or pole or mast or truss, there's like seven of each of those in different places. So it became it, it, it's been on my mind lately that it's important that the documentation and the notes be somewhat accurate. Two weeks ago, I wouldn't have chewed you out about it. It was not on my mind. <laughs> well, let's just reel this back a little bit. Okay. Um, so we were talking about uh, difference in projects, scopes. Yeah. So, but you were you put out some interesting uh, quantity numbers that I thought was very interesting because I think the first one was like one to a hundred or one to fifty. Yeah. And the next one was like a hundred to a thousand. A thousand. I think then, I did it a thousand to ten thousand. No, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and then and then beyond that, and then one hundred k on. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting because those are sizes that typically come on either different ways from the from the, like a vendor in terms of like electrical components. Because when you buy cut tape, usually you're in that that one to hundred range, and then up, most time components come in ten thousand ish reels. Yeah. There's some bigger reels and smaller reels, but you're 10,000. And then beyond that, you're like getting drop ship boxes from the from the manufacturer. Yeah. <laughs> you get yeah. a box from Molex that says like 10,000 on them. And it's like the size of like a, like, you know, a moving box. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, definitely. Like, um, so the numbers, the reason behind the numbers is partially because of that is like parts are, are usually sourced in quantities divisible by 10,000 or thousand, right? Like thousand on a reel, 5,000 on a reel, 10,000 on a reel. Um, but, but really what it boils down to, and I'm glad we had that little accounting discussion. Um, it's actually an accounting thing. Um, I don't know why, but all customers ask for their quotes in even increments um, so they can project their profit and revenue streams, I would guess. And for whatever reason, like below 10,000, 10,000 to 50,000 and 100,000 and beyond, I, I don't think anybody's ever asked me, like if they want me to know that there's a lot, then they just say that'll be millions, right? And then I can just assume 100,000 or more a year. If they yeah. say there's going to be a lot, but they also told me their budget is $5,000, they're in the 10,000 unit range or less, right? So that's that's why I've kind of broken them into those ranges is I think of three numbers, less than 100, uh, 10,000 and 100,000. I don't really think about the deviations between them because they don't change our activities. This is this is kind of like an eye roll thing when for customers for me is when they give you like I want to quote for like one ten and like twenty thousand, <laughs> and it's like that super optimistic number, and I'm like, sure, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I've noticed that too. One is is really easy, and right? it comes from like an at Gmail account. <laughs> Yeah, because you got nothing better to do than answer quote questions all day long. Exactly. And they're going to try to interpolate the curve in between there and guess your numbers. Yeah. yeah. But the best thing about that is like, like at least at least with MacFab, it's, it just takes like quoting something out, onesies to fifties or whatever. It's pretty quick. Like, but because you don't really have to worry about supply chain issues. You can go on Mauser, DigiKey, those vendors and see what their quantities are at and stuff like that. When you go up to like 20,000 plus you're getting custom quotes from all these part vendors directly. It's like, okay, now I'm going to spend three or four days getting this quoted out correctly for you. Yeah. Yeah. So does and you're going to be like, and then you're going to come back and be like, that's a good number. <laughs> We're going to build a thousand though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know that's, a, that's exactly right. So does Macrofab with your house parts, do you guys have any parts that you guys just flat out use so much that you stock? Yeah, that's what the house parts generally are. So it, do you guys have any, like, so so if I go in there right now and, and order out, I don't know what, more than, than you have available, um, how do you guys mitigate that? How do you make sure that, that the parts that fly off the shelf don't completely fly off the shelf? So Scramble. The, the um, part vendor that we use for those, they actually keep a whole bunch also for us. Okay. So it's basically what, like what you were talking about earlier, like buy a lot of them. Yeah. That's what it is. And then we just, um, and then that vendor basically just has a, probably a whole shelf for us at wherever warehouse in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's just like macro house parts are these things. Gotcha. You, you know, actually that's something interesting. Um, I, I forgot about this, but that's that's a service that a lot of places actually offer where you can pre-purchase parts and they will hold on to them and release them on whatever schedule you're asking for. So uh, instead of you uh, holding on to those parts and like I was going on with taxes earlier, paying taxes on inventory, a lot of times you can pre-purchase and get streams whenever you need them and then you have them on demand. Mm-hmm. 
I have one word to say about all that. Allocation. Yeah. yeah. You ever been on allocation? That sucks, man. <laughs> so uh, I guess maybe I should. So I, I hadn't heard the term allocation until we got on it. Um, and that's a shitty time to figure out what being on allocation means. But basically, um, we pre-purchased a bunch of, uh, I think it was discrete. So we just bypassed it when this came up. Um, but if it had been our microcontroller, it would have been a problem. But basically, we pre-agreed to buy a certain amount at a certain velocity, and um, like you just described. And then I guess it would have been in 2018. Uh, there were some part availability issues, <laughs> obviously, right? And then um, we placed our regular monthly order, and they came back to us and were like, no, 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 that, that, those will ship. So this is like in June. I think they told us they were going to ship in like October. And when I got back in and dug around to it, they're like, well, you placed your order on allocation. So basically, like, whatever order the orders came in at uh, were, the, were the orders in which they were fulfilled. That there were other people on allocation that had, had purchased before me. And so they were fulfilling those customers' orders first. But they're recurring. Those orders never get out of my way. So I'll never get parts unless that other vendor stops using them or the, the source company starts making more. But yeah, allocation can be can be really problematic in a world where you've staged all of your equipment and set your safety nets up uh, and you don't actually own the inventory. I think Macrofab probably owns the house parts, don't they? You guys pay for them and then stock them? Or is it a shared inventory situation with this vendor? Can you even talk about it? Uh, so I know the ones that are actually at our HQ we own. Um, I don't know about the ones that are at the vendor, though. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I know we've used your inventory system before, uh, storing parts that are like we've had some customs come out of China, special in type connectors and things like that, and we've stored them there. It works. It works fantastic, and we pre-bought all of those. In fact, I still have like I don't know a few thousand of those left over um, that we brought back into our warehouse after the project closed out. I need to sell those. Yeah. Um on the project, one of the things you mentioned was like the lifespan of your project as well. Um, where it's yeah. like one year, you typically, this is where we say, yeah, you just go to manufacturer and see how long they're going to be making it for. But going back to, um, but those are just like, like pinky swear promises on yeah. the data sheet. I mean, look, for example, like let's just say TI. TI can just go bankrupt tomorrow, yeah. right? They could be caught in a hedge fund whirlwind, right? Like GameStop did. And uh, they go down the toilet. Let's just say that happens. Well, yeah. <laughs> their peaky promise in their data sheets doesn't mean jack shit then. Yeah. Um, so if, you're, if your lifespan is, let's say, 20 years, which I don't know of any electric electronic product that's 20 years old that still gets built, but they probably exist. Um, actually, you can't think of one, Parker. Actually, I can think of a couple now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say yeah. pinball. Yeah. Well, no no one's making new boards, though. Rotten dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Those those are different, though. They're Sorry, not, I like, want to derail you. Keep going. Those Keep aren't going. direct replacements. <laughs> it's not like William and Bally is still Our, yeah. building a William Bally 95 machine uh, board set. Yeah. Anyways, let's say you were doing that, though. And you have to find them. Uh, actually, you can still buy Motorola 68Ks, can you? Brand new. I think you can still buy those. Anyways, that that throws away my example. But um, <laughs> is 
is uh, if your project's going to be a long lasting project is probably pre buy if you can't afford it pre buy your actives at least passives 10k resistor is going to be a 10k resistor yeah unless we develop some kind of wormhole technology that tunnel electrons faster in a medium um <laughs> but the, um the uh actives yeah for sure because then you get around like obsolete relays kind of i would say electromechanical stuff that generally don't have a lot of high volume anyways at distributors that's something you probably get on order asap yeah that's interesting so i was actually gonna uh, i hadn't thought about it that way i was gonna say that like smaller projects say like if you if your project life is is one year expectancy um i would think it would be more compatible and easier to just buy all the parts up front um than it would be on a 20-year project um on the 20-year project i was going to say the same thing you did that's uh, like save all of the things you can the actives especially because uh or or that's a good catch with electromechanical um they can be problematic to to resource uh, and staying on the pinball world man like some of the old 70s hardware right the the poppers and things like that are completely different than we make right now and uh there are now specialty companies that have to have to make them and they cost a lot more than if you just stocked up you know the 300 you needed so this is turning into like the macfab engineering podcast hoarders edition yeah oh yeah um, dude, you should see our warehouse it's full of stuff we don't need <laughs> but uh so when was this um hoarders edition this must have been like five years ago. No, this was back before Macrofab. So this is like eight, nine years ago. Um, I went to go help out a friend clear out his father's warehouse after his father passed away. And so his father was into, uh, he was a lawyer doing pro like, like if a product failed and like burned down someone's house, this guy mm. would represent the company to mitigate uh, mitigate um, liability. Yeah. Liability lawyer, I guess is a good way to put it. Anyway, so you go into this warehouse and there's like hundreds of everything, but you can't use it because you don't know like if that was like a lawsuit he won or lost. So you didn't know if those products were good or not. Yeah. <laughs> but so that's not the story, but the story is he also was in the cars. And so but when he would buy a car, he would buy all the parts that that car would need in its lifespan. And so you'd walk in there and there'd be enough oil for all of its lifetime oil changes. <laughs> all the oil filters it would need, all the lug nuts, all the... He didn't have tires, but like everything else, belts, fluid changes, light bulbs, all that stuff. And he, there was like 10, 15 different cars. All those had their <laughs> own like inventory lists of like the lifespan of the cars. And guess what? Those like those cars probably never got driven. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm paranoid like that too. Um, I, so if I buy a new pinball, uh, I, I buy all of the components that can break because they're available right now. Like anything that's, that's available as an accessory and add on an option or anything that's custom and crazy, you know, that, that it will be hard to find when that game isn't hot anymore. Um, but I don't go to the effort of buying stuff that, that I likely won't need. I, I don't buy absolutely everything, but I will tell you this at, at my own detriment. Um, I, I pre-bought all of my shoes for the rest of my life. Like I have one set of shoes that I wear on a daily basis, just little tennis shoes around. And I bought enough that I will never have to go back to a store and buy day shoes ever again. 
See, I have I have that problem with my glasses because I always, I get attached to like how they look, but uh-huh. you wear them out in like two three years. Yeah, and so I, I'm actually thinking like maybe my next pair I buy like ten pairs of them. Yeah, dude, I totally. So I ripped it straight off of uh, off the fly uh, from when was that movie made? Like in the '80s, right? Um, and he was he was describing to the girl while all his clothes are the same, right? It was Einstein, just like same pants, same same shirt. And so I don't have the same shirts, but I bought like fifty of the same pair of pants. And then I've got t-shirts hanging up in my closet and I don't care what order they go in. I just pull the first one on the right every morning. I take the first pair of pants out of the drawer every morning and it's, it's great. I never have to think about any of that stuff, but it, it makes me look pretty stupid if somebody comes over and is like, like sees the organization that doesn't realize that I guess I, I maybe I am a hoarder. I, I was about to justify my behavior, but I think I might be a hoarder. You see, okay, I, I came up with a phrase the other uh, a few years back with a buddy of mine who, if if you Parker went over to my old uh, my old warehouse that I shared with oh, like yeah. three other people, you could you could call it hoarding. We like to call it maximizing. Uh, that's <laughs> maximizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that that made it that made it not sound so bad, right? Like you, I guess yeah. So. My favorite was the palette of oscilloscopes <laughs> that like there's like a palette of oscilloscopes with like three worked <laughs> oh no 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 none of them worked because i went oh, through no. all of them i i picked up 88 oscilloscopes one one day and put them in the back of my truck and my truck was on its bump stuff uh <laughs> and and i went through all 88 and found the few that worked and then I went. I went to my buddy who who is an excellent maximizer, and uh, asked him. He and he, he he's <laughs> he is not he is not an electrical guy whatsoever. And I was like, "Would you like these oscilloscopes?" He's like, "Absolutely." And dude, I need to steal that away. term, man. Maximizer is is definitely the thing. I mean, like, so when I first started this company, I was just working out of my basement and moonlighting just to help people out. And then um, we decided to get out of the, the work world and, and just do consulting full time. And by, I don't know, probably six months of me doing like electrical stuff in my basement, the whole thing, like the entire base, not the room I was in, the whole basement was full of my shit. And so now my wife is sitting here thinking like, I'm just going to keep making like a scroll into the house, scroll into the house everywhere. And uh, ultimately what I ended up doing is not getting rid of any of this stuff. I, I rented a warehouse and set up shelves and I still have it all. But seriously, like I can pretty much like you can name something reasonable, but, but random. And I can probably reach it from where I'm sitting right now. Like I keep like, see all the buckets behind me and all the bins and all that sort of stuff. It's cause it comes up, right? Like tear, you got to tear something apart and, and pull it out. And honestly, like somebody calls up and they're like, Hey, I got this idea for this product or the other. And I'm sitting there thinking about a pinball I just tore apart or my kids like McDonald toy that I took, you know, and opened up and saw the spring mechanism or something. And I keep all that crap in my desk and piled up because it gives me visual reference for mechanical resolution. I don't know. Maybe it's not a problem to be a maximizer. So you guys made me justify myself. Damn it. That's what I just said. I wasn't going to (laughs) do. But yeah, I'm maximizing it. I'm not, I'm not going to be a hoarder anymore. (laughs) One more person saved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <one more> <laughs> oh, crud, dude. So we, I, I, we made a side note of, of talking a little bit about, so we, we talked a lot about component sourcing and, and DFM for components, but something that uh, pharmaceuticals definitely think about, but not everybody thinks about is your vendor 
being a source, right? Like the, the provider of this combination of, of products is also a thing that you need to be considering. Um, I, I don't know that it's such a big deal about where they are, although I, I do think that your resources that manage that vendor need to be accessible to that site. Um, like if you're, if you're not legally capable of traveling to China or you don't have somebody in your company that can, probably shouldn't set up your CM in China. You probably uh, not have a CM in North Korea. Yeah, right? Like, exactly. Think, think it through a little bit. Some of them are obvious like that, right? But some of them are not so obvious. Like, simply communicating across the pond with a 12-hour difference is is, is a task, right? Like, it, it, take, it, it there's a toll involved there, and it's lost opportunity. So if you send somebody over to China uh, or whatever, North Korea... You, uh, you can definitely resolve the problem immediately, but then you lost your resource for that period of time and they had to travel to China, um, which, you know, sounds fantastic until you do it. Um, and then, you know, I, I really like being there, but I don't like the transit. You wake up eight hours into the flight and realize you've got eight hours left and you just want to die because then the next thought you have is 16 hours back, right? Like you're, you're not, you really haven't made it anywhere. But that is something to consider. You can wear out your engineers, and, and they simply won't go anymore if, if you can't get your head wrapped around your vendor. Flip side of that is you, your guy down the road, the, the guy who can weld some stuff, probably is not the dude you should be using his oven for like PCB manufacturing, right? So like you kind of got to blend in and make sure that you can actually get to your vendors. Uh, I don't know. Is there is there... Is there anything to that statement? Have you guys had vendor problems like that where like they, they selected the right vendor, but that customer couldn't manage it, but it was the customer's issue and their inability to get to the vendor and give them the detail they needed. Or is this just like my, my experience only? Well, at Macro, we typically manage the vendors for our customers. So it's typically not on the customer unless they're bringing us stuff that they've already had pre-manufactured like plastics and that kind of stuff mm, yeah so maybe more like on the box build side of things yeah that's definitely more on the box build stuff but yeah i've seen that with with injection molding plastics um yeah and machining where we'll get and actually i think steven was at the fab for one of these projects where the enclosures were not machined to tolerance right and um and of course whatever vendor they used is long gone on aliexpress by then yeah and uh so craig busts out a a a stone tablet thing that's like micron level and starts like measuring all these like enclosures <laughs> oh yeah that was fun you, you know actually uh here's here's another thing this applies a little bit more to the cm side uh but i've certainly run into this if if your customer is asking for particular uh, processes to be done that are third party to the CM, then it is 99.9% of the time best to define that in, in, in a documentation or drawings or, or whatever, and then let your CM manage that. Uh, I have certainly had experience where the customer was managing the third parties and we were being the chauffeur in between there. And maybe the customer doesn't have the best um, experience with it, but they're, or maybe their their focus is 
way more on the aesthetics, but not the uh, manufacturability. And then you run into all these issues of being the chauffeur and, and figuring things out. Like if yeah. you're asking for XYZ processes to be done and you're asking your contract manufacturer to be the final step in that, it's almost best that uh, it's, it's almost always best to let the contract manu- manufacturer do the work from top to bottom. Yeah, I you know I like that approach because um, maybe I guess I'll stick with this pharmaceutical right. Like they were they were on the rampage to have multiple sources and to control their vendors and to minimize pricing and get right to the root like you would in a pharmaceutical. And so we, we basically managed a battery company in China in this way through our so our CM wanted it and we told him no. We've got this great deal with these dudes, right? So. Um, you're, you're right. It became an issue because when we started seeing quality concerns, we bring them to our CM and we're like, what the heck? We're having failures. And they're like, no, we're not seeing it. Um, keep going. Like, give us some more samples and we'll just keep going. And what it turned out to be is the battery manufacturer decided to save us all some money and stop putting four weld joints on the tab. It was only spot welding it twice. So the batteries were just falling out of their, their tabs. And the CM saving money in quotes. Yeah, <laughs> high five all around, right? Like, <laughs> thanks for that, dude. Um, but yeah, when they decided to do that, it, it impacted our project. And the CM ultimately, I handed that battery manufacturer over to the CM because of this issue. I, and I told him, I'm like, you either manage that guy or you go find another one. But I'm done dealing with batteries. Here's the price we need. Yeah, right. And 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 half the time they enjoy that because then they yeah. don't have to they don't have to be the weird third party loop in quality issues. Yeah. Well, and I've never seen this happen in the States, not to say it doesn't, but I do know that, that in China, one major reason that you're seeing, and, and this is not a bad thing or a good thing. It can be good for you and bad for you, but the, the CMs housing all of the other CMs, right? So you only have one throat to choke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like that's, that's what you want. That's where we're headed is one, one response so, so you go out and you find your, your CM um, and, and then hand all of your vendors over to them. And what they'll do is go secondarily provide find vendors that are cheaper, which they should be doing, right? They should be improving their process and cutting their margins. But it's rare that a, that a Chinese CM understands the spec enough to make certain decisions. Like we had laser additive in a plastic so we could mark it. And the Chinese manufacturer decided that we didn't need one and a half percent, that we could get away with 1.2 percent. And we can, but it, it wasn't dark enough. It wasn't what the customer wanted. So, so you do you can't just hand over all of your your vendors without keeping an eye on it and keeping an eye on quality, especially if you're overseas, especially well, if you're overseas. That, that sort of goes back to what I, what I was saying with your documentation. If your documentation clearly stated 1.5 percent, minimum and I, and I'm not saying yours didn't but but in a situation like that if I had documentation that says 1.5 and then I found out that it isn't that's when you go back and say hey you didn't follow what it was agreed to here yeah yeah in this particular case I'll give you the the true answer be, behind the the root of the problem is is we did spec 1.5% um but we when we spec 1.5% we didn't know how dark we needed it we just knew how dark we wanted it and so the final agreement that they signed with, with them was a, a contrast number. 
And so they just they basically had to do a certain contrast. And what we found was that that contrast mark wasn't as dark as we wanted it to be. Got it. And so, again, they, they were like, oh, well, we could save you money. We can get to that contrast level and save everybody, whatever, 3% of the additive. Uh, I think that those are more like, like, I don't know that, that it's advice as much as it is just like everybody should hear everybody else's horror stories and let everybody else fail the bad ways so that we can, the rest of us can avoid them in the future. <laughs> I feel like that's really what, what the, like, at least the DFM podcasts on my end have been about is like just rattling off bad crap that happened. And then what I did to get out of the hole. Honestly, that's, that's been every DFM podcast we have. Yeah. 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 The, um, on that, what's interesting is you were talking about like understanding the scope of when you start changing things. Um, yeah. The it, it's knowing as a CM is knowing what is the right questions to ask of the designers. Um, especially we're like, okay, like my examples, there was a resistor I needed to get an alternate for. And it's like, what are values? Like, let's say it's 100K. Well, I can go find 2010 size 100Ks all day, right? Well, that's not the whole story because it's like, what, 30 different specifications minimal for a resistor? And so it's actually asking the designers, hey, we need to find a part alternate for this because you want, you know, 10,000 of these and there's only like 100 of these resistors. What values do you all actually care about in these resistors? That makes it so that you had to have this one. So as a CM, would you go... (laughs) I can, uh, this would be a nightmare. So rather than getting individual values, would it be better to just give a range of each of those 30 values on the resistor and then let the CM pick? You guys can be the prop, you guys can solve the, the part sourcing problem altogether. That's a lot of work for the engineer. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> the that's, designer. That's why or equivalent is, is a very uh, powerful word or we use a uh, meets or beats. So yeah, meets or beats the, yeah. these values. Fine. Whatever. It's great. Yeah, but well, okay, that's so not what always about the complex? case, though. But that's not always the case because there could be one value, like let's say voltage was very important for the resistor, but wattage isn't. As long right. as you meet a minimal wattage rating, and it could be like a quarter watt, but most of these resistors are half a watt or one watt resistors, but you don't, but they picked a one watt one, but they all actually only needed to be a quarter watt, but they need a high voltage rating. So they go, okay, your wattage. Yeah, so you, they need to explain a little bit more than meet or beats in that. In that that's sense. that's where I was going to ask is like so so if you're going to say meets or beats and I say I need a uh, twelve puff cap um, with a Q of two hundred, is is the Q uh, uh, is a higher Q better or is a higher Q lower? You won't know whether it meets or beats it until you know what my Q requirements are. Do you know what I mean? I might intentionally want a narrow Q. And I might explicitly need a wide band queue. Well, the, okay. So, so if you're starting to get into uh, those particular characteristics of passives, you, your your or equivalent starts to get very, very thin. Yeah. You know, you start to you start to bear, basically narrow down to like we have evaluated this exact part number, and this is the only one that can be used. Mm-hmm. Well, I was able to find. I was basically had to interview the designers of like, what is this resistor used for and what values are important, all that good stuff. And then I found like 10 alternates. So yeah. Well, yeah. Something else also Parker about the whole, like 
you know, maybe you, if you have wattage like one watt and there's a, and a quarter watt could do it, the, the circuit would be fine. One of the reasons why I was saying meets or beats is coming from one of my first jobs where we were doing like class one, div one, class one, div two stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if your bill of materials has a one watt resistor, you cannot go under one watt. Even if the circuit would allow for it, it has to be that value or above for every characteristic of the resistor. So that's where, where we came up with the meets or beats kind of situation. I can see in that, in that case. But that's the thing is like, then the customer would be like, yeah, it has to be one watt because of class one div one. Right. So right. with your meets or beats, again, the, the question, that, the, the thing I'm, I'm hung up on is, what do you do in, in declining value, right? So like ESR, we need a low ESR. So meets or beats, obviously in, in English, it would mean that a lower ESR would be better. But from a, a, I think a computational perspective, if you were trying to automate this in attributes in Eagle or something like that, how, how do you meets or beats ESR on the low side while meeting the wattage on the high side? Well, okay, so... Uh, I could tell you from the from the agency approval side of things, they only hold you not only they hold you accountable to basically what you supply them. So the goal half the time with agency approvals is to meet the approval while giving them the least amount of uh, information so that you can do that. So, you know, they're going to they're going to care about the things that can cause uh, a spark or cause too much energy in a system or cause a fire. So they'll care about the wattage. They'll care about the value. They'll care about uh, things of that sort. But if it's kind of your fault, if you put ESR on the bill of materials, cause then they'll hold you to it cause it's on your documentation. But if you uh. don't hold it, uh, put it there, then it doesn't fit the meets or beats kind of. Okay. So I see that then because you're right. Like I'm, I'm picking and choosing things that are obvious, right? Like ESR is in a negative direction, depending on what you're doing and wattage would be in a positive direction, depending on what you're doing. And you're right. Most components have obvious ones, but I pick those ones out because some components are not obvious. Q, unless you're, unless you're in RF, most people don't even think about Q. They're just bypassing shit and decoupling shit. I wish there was a, uh, a, a capacitor type that's just called bypass shit. <laughs> yeah like seriously right there should be one that's called everything. it's called the mf cap 0402 0.1 microfarad yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The no no number. i'm saying a whole category at like mauser i just want to bypass shit oh there it is <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah seriously there should be a basic cat i i think that those should be common parts right like like in the um in in the tools eagle or whatever there should be like I need bypassing. I want to push this button and switch into by, like circuit bypass mode. And I just want to select bypass cap, caps and drop those dudes wherever I need them. You know, things that are repetitive tasks like that. And uh, Maggie hooks it up to your voltage rails. Yeah. 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 Kind of like the way the buses work, right? When you're routing a bus. Yeah. Is tell it what mode you, what, or what you intend to do for like the next four hours and then stop having to click the tool a billion times because it switches over to the select thing because it knows that's what you need. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. So I have I have an eagle. I, there's been a lot of chatter in the podcast and in the, uh, in the uh, channel, the Slack channel, about eagle in general. I have an interesting thing I did in eagle if you guys want to hear about it now. That's a, if that, that's a good uh, segue. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay, so I, we had a project. Um, I'm trying to think how much I can. Let me just think about this project for a second, make sure I don't give anything out or, or whatever. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. So basically, like this this project um, is an IoT type device, but it has a lot of different like blocks in it: power blocks, radio blocks, battery blocks, things like that. And uh, originally, I I was contracted to do it, and I thought, yeah, I got I got all kinds of time. I'll just knock this out one block at a time and go on about my business. And uh, I don't know what maybe December time frame they called and asked if we could like accelerate and fast track. So um, I I kind of put together a group of a couple of engineers, and I was trying to figure out how can I multitask and build multiple schematics in one schematic all at the same time. So what I ended up doing is uh, I've got this crazy folder structure, and we I can go into detail if you if you have questions. But basically, there's a folder for the project underneath my project, and the, and I call that View Zero, the very first version. And then in that same folder, I've got another folder called Scratchpad. And what I did is I just started creating projects and or boards and schematics in them for my GPS modem. And then I created another project for my five volt regulator and another one for my battery, you know, whatever else I was going to do with the battery. And then what I did is I, I created design blocks, exported the design block and imported it into the V0 version. And then I've set up white outlines where each of those are going to essentially be set up to run. And then what we were able to do is basically bounce back and forth like, okay, today I'm working on wireless and you work on power, divide and conquer, come back together. And at the end of the day, we push the design blocks together and do a schematic review and be like, shit, that's not going to be able to sit there. Let's move this around. And we were able to knock out significantly complicated project in a surprisingly short amount of time by having multiple engineers I'm quoting here, right? Like work in the same Eagle file at the same time, like you would on a Google doc. That's cool. So that's my, yeah, that's my story. I mean, you, you definitely, there's some dangers and some risks. And if one of you opens the V zero file and the other one saves it and like, I'm using a, like a Dropbox share to share the files back and forth. So when, when you sync it up, you've always got your backups, but it might be difficult to find in all the saves that they did, you know, out in OneDrive or or whatever, but it, but it seems to work really well for, remote distributed teams. And I mean, at the end, somebody's got to, you know, stitch it all together. But yeah, that's, that's my, that's my Eagle findings. I don't know if people are bitching or just generally passive about Eagle or curious about it. I haven't, I haven't really got the, the threads take on, on how they feel about Eagle. I, I actually haven't even seen anyone Besides a couple of the, there's a couple online EDA tools that have dabbed in that like multiple users working on a board at the same time. Um, I haven't really seen that as anyone making that a selling point for their EDA tools yet. So how are how are bigger teams doing it, right? Like, so if I had ten engineers on a project that had a bunch of different, uh, let's, let's say I got five voltage rails, would you would you typically? assign the power supply guy to all the voltage rails? And then how would you merge the project in with, say, like, the processing? So I've never used the... I've used Cadence before, but not for board layout. And it was just me yeah. alone. So I don't really know... Because I'm, I'm going to assume those big packages like Cadence have something in there, like some kind of hierarchy, tile, schematic that you can bring stuff in. Um, but I don't know... Altium has to have something like that. I was going to say, I, I don't design in Altium unless the customer brings Altium to me, but that's just because I know I don't know where the buttons are as much as I do in Eagle. Um, but I think you're right. I think there is a collaborative 
a collaborative deal in in here somewhere. So I guess maybe that's a call out to the group. If you guys if you guys know of good ways of collaborating, like PM me or put them in the general channel or whatever, because there's there's got to be a better way to design um, complicated, especially when you start bringing mechanical in and using fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's got to be a better way to to multi design that. And fusion's workflow is perfect. Like fusion is great at being able to have multiple people in there and tag areas in the in the drawings and things like that. But Eagle is not ready for multiple people to be in the same files. Well, we had um, the Eagle Autodesk's Eagle product manager. Manager? Yeah. What was his name? Brian? I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm checking real quick. I I, I think if you are doing complex design that needs or warrants multiple engineers looking at multiple sections at once. Uh, you know, I, I would, I would, I would think one of the cleaner ways of doing it is, you know, you get everyone together, you kind of brainstorm your block diagram and then you just go and distribute however necessary. And, you know, if it's, if it's something where like everyone is, uh, super hyper connected in terms of what every portion of their circuit needs, uh, every portion of their circuit is, is, very connected then just have regular check-ins you know once a day where everyone just discusses hey i need this right or this is how this is going and i've completed this section uh and and you know assuming you have as many seats in your eda tool as you do engineers then just break it apart and have each person do it individually if that's possible so my my first question to that is actually i got i got a two-parter sorry parker so one is is like how would you, so does only one person do layout? So that's great communication, right? But who's going to be able to do the layout? And then my second statement says question is the reason might not be complexity. It might be throughput. If they just want to get their board done quicker, they might want more engineers on it. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think on that a little bit, but it was Benjamin Jordan we had on the podcast. So he was talking about, um, kind of like, uh, doing board design in fusion. And so fusion already works really well with, with collaboration. And that might be, this is just me spitballing thinking about it as you brought it up is maybe that is also the future of uh, fusion doing boards is being able to collaborate on boards design in fusion. Yeah, that maybe. So he's going to call me up and be like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for committing that to us. All right. That's in the next release, everyone. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that, uh, I, I, I didn't mean to be like complaining about Eagle, right? Like, and what I'm describing is a workaround for collaboration in a platform that doesn't support it. But if I, but so, so to make it sound less like a complaint and more like a suggestion, ab- absolutely. I think moving away from Eagle and, and combining fusion like in the modes, right? Where you've got the different design modes, render, animate, simulate, PCB, right? Then I wouldn't, then I truly wouldn't need to switch EDA to to go to mechanical versus electrical, which is, I I, I was a little, I was a little caught off guard. How do I say that nicely? I was a little caught off guard when I found out that, that the integration between Eagle and Fusion isn't really integration. It's file transfer that's automated for you. Um, but they sell it as, as full integration, which is what I got got it for after using Altium, right? Like, so Altium is truly direct integrated. When you go to 3D mode, like, there's no 
push diffusion or anything like that. So by comparison, I, I like that concept of, of being able to use the, the modeler tool for the PCBA one. But in practice, I don't know how that would work out. And maybe it's as simple as using a design mode in, in Fusion. I, I will be honest, I am really good at Eagle, somewhat good at, at Altium in terms of speed. And Fusion, I'm just dipping my toe in the pond. So maybe maybe I'm afraid of using Fusion for PCBs simply because I'm not familiar with it. I, I would just like if it was if it worked a lot like how a Google Doc worked, where yeah. Steve and I can be on the same board and we'd be using different tools or whatever, just have I don't see why they wouldn't be possible. It shouldn't it shouldn't be an issue. I mean, it has to do with the way that the tools were designed in the past. And if you guys oh, haven't for checked, sure. yeah, if you haven't checked out Lucid Charts, like Lucid Charts is basically PowerPoint on steroids, and it lets you have multiple people like in the same document at the same time. You can build um, UML diagrams, you can build uh, presentations, multiple sheets, stuff like that. Uh, and and that's what kind of got me on this this path. I, if I hadn't seen that tool, I probably wouldn't have even complained about Eagle. I didn't realize you could co collaborate in real time so effectively with engineers. So anyway, yeah, that was a bit of a sidetrack, but it's okay. We should be wrapping up this podcast though. Yeah. Do we have any, anything else? Oh, tons, but, but, uh, <laughs> no, you got to say that for the next hour of the podcast. Yeah. So, so I just have to come up with one more hour of nonsense to make up. Huh? I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> You want to sign us out, Chris? Uh, yeah. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Chris Carter. And we are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, Yes You, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or emails at podcast at macfab.com. Also check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macfab.com slash Slack. Uh, I think Chris Carter is there all the time as well. Oh yeah. <laughs>